Welcome to another Crisis Conversation, live from the Better Life Lab. I'm Bridget Schulte, and today we're going to be talking about you've hung up your Black Lives Matter sign, you've put out your statement about why structural racism is something that we need to tackle in this country. So how do you do it? How do you build an anti-racist organization and culture? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we've got a fantastic panel, so let me introduce them and then we will jump right in. So we've got Melanie Parker. She's the Chief Diversity Officer at Google, whose team just produced the 2020 Diversity Annual Report. We've got Anselm Beach. He's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Equity and Inclusion, and he's spearheading something called Project Inclusion that we'll hear more about today. We've got Sarah Todd. She's a senior reporter for Quartz and Quartz at Work, and she's the author of What an Anti-Racist Workplace Looks Like. And finally, we've got Tim Sanova and Lauren Ruffin, COO and Chief External Relations Officer for Fractured Atlas, a New York City-based nonprofit that helps artists access funding. So, Sarah, let's start with you. You know, you've written uh, quite a bit about diversity, equity, and inclusion. You've looked at this question of how to build an anti-racist organization. And what struck me in reading your reporting is you started out by saying there really there really aren't any. So can you talk about sort of the landscape that's out there and what, what did you find in your reporting? So uh, that was something that a diversity consultant named Evelyn Carter told me that I was really struck by. There's no such thing as an anti-racist company. And by that, what she means is that every company has more work to do. There's no one company that is the ultimate model. Um, and, you know, what we've seen, I think, in the past couple of months is a really interesting reckoning. Most companies already had some form of diversity and inclusion policy or program. But when the Black Lives Matter protests happened, a lot of them released statements in, in support of the movement and were met by accusations of woke washing. You know, people mm -hmm. saying, you, you say one thing, but your actions reveal another. So, for example, Amazon uh, got hit by critics over the fact that it was selling facial recognition technology, uh, which it has since agreed to spend for a year, at least. Um, so there was a lot of, a lot of critique happening in a, in a productive way, I think, because it's pushing companies to know that the status quo isn't enough and they have to be doing more. So in terms of, you know, what the big challenges are right now, I think there are so many, but if I really had to boil it down, I would say uh, hiring and promotions are probably two really basic, crucial issues. Mm -hmm. uh, only 3% of senior executives and, and leadership at Fortune 500 companies are Black. So there's clearly a huge gap when it comes to leadership. Uh, and then when it comes to, you know, hiring and, and recruitment, the issue isn't a lack of talented people, but that a lot of companies haven't set up the pipelines to be able to recruit effectively. And then also that there are a lot of ingrained biases in the hiring process. I think a lot of big companies are still in sort of the listening tour phase, which mm -hmm. makes sense. It's a time when they have to be careful in, in reevaluating their practices. But there have been some interesting pledges that have already come out. So a lot of companies recognize Juneteenth this year for the mm -hmm. first time, a holiday celebrating the end of slavery. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and Adidas said that it would fill at least 30% of all its currently open positions with Black or Latinx candidates. Estee Lauder said, made a pledge that it will make sure that the percentage of Black employees at all levels of the company will mirror the percentage of Black people in the U.S. within the next five years. So we have seen several companies making strong 
public commitment. So thanks so much, Sarah. So that, Melanie, that's a perfect segue to talk to you about Google and some some of the work that you've been doing. Um, In 2014, Google was one of the very first companies, particularly in the tech sector, to release demographic data you know, that uh, being very transparent and what it showed, sort of not surprisingly, is that there was, you know, a lot of white men and a lot of Asian men uh, in a lot of positions and particularly positions of power in the tech sector. So talk a little bit about what you're finding in the in your annual report, uh, kind of what how that's kind of shaping the work that you're doing and how you're thinking about it. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity and agree a lot with the points that that Sarah made, which is a lot of what we've incorporated at Google, where you know diversity really is a verb. It's that ongoing commitment. And we intentionally published our data uh, six years ago because we're both leaders and learners. And what we found is that focus on representation, which is hiring minus attrition, And that gap in between that is what Sarah so eloquently talked about, which is how we're progressing our talent, not just how we're promoting, but what are the development um, assignments? How are we focusing on attrition, making sure that the folks that we're hiring are staying at the same time? And then very important is that leadership commitment and that leadership buy-in. I'm so proud at Google, like Sundar gets it. You know, Mm -hmm. he's all in. And, you know, really helping us to lead the way. But we have to be transparent about our journey. We still have an opportunity that lies in front of us. It's an opportunity-rich environment. And so I want other companies to learn from, you know, Google as well and to be willing to share that vulnerability because truly it's a collective action that we have to take and not just as a company, but definitely as a society. Mm-hmm. And so what does education look like? Who has access to computing? Who has access to healthcare? Who's well enough? And so all of these structures really underpin the systemic racism that we're facing right now. And so how do we come together as a collective to move that forward? And we should do that very transparently. Yeah, you know, you you may raise such interesting points, such important points, you know, with all of the structural racism, if you don't have the education system, if you don't have access to broadband, which is something that we are seeing so um, painfully in this in this pandemic. Um, but to go back to, you know, you talk about diversity being a verb. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the specific things that you're doing at Google that you think other people, you know, that you're learning from and what are some of the results that you're finding? So we set aspirational goals um, around how we want to make sure that we're hiring the available talent. So as we look at black and brown talent, we're actually putting a stake in the ground as to how we want to grow one of the public commitments that we've made is a 30% increase in our executive leadership roles for our underrepresented minority talent, which is Black, Latinx, and Native American. We're also making sure that we have a very focused approach to sponsorship and advocacy and mentoring. So we have a Pathways to Sponsorship program. We piloted about two years ago a retention program for underrepresented minority uh, Googlers, so black and brown Googlers. at And what we found there is that by giving that targeted support to people who were thinking about leaving, we were actually making 
big Google, small Google, and helping mm-hmm. people navigate. So a lot of what we found is we need to set better expectations um, for and Googlers when they're coming in. What's expected? How are you successful? Are you getting the feedback? Um, and it's not just about what's the fit for Google. What's the ad? What is it that we need to add you know, to our workforce as well? And how are we valuing that? And so there's no one program. It's looking at that data, being informed by that, and mm-hmm. really customizing or targeting our strategy based on what the data is showing us. And the collection of strategies is really what's going to help us continue to, you know, meet the goals that we've set for ourselves. So I want to ask you one last question, and then I want to move on to, to Anselm in a minute. But why why is this important? You know, we, we, we look at millions have been spent at diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, you know, and uh, we've got a question in the, uh, in the, in the chat saying, uh, can we probe a little bit more on C-suite representation as a key driver for equity and inclusion? And Sarah opened with, you know, Fortune 500, you know, very, very minuscule representation, not only of, of Black and Latinx, but women, you know, that we still have structures that favor and promote white men. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, that, that the, the C-suite, you know, that these are efforts that come from the top down. And when you're building the pipeline, that's a long time to wait, right? Completely agree. And I, I would sum that up by saying representation matters. And so we do need that representation um, at the top, at the middle, at all of all of those places, because we need the voices at the table. We need the insights, the cultural competence. And so but that's where we have to make sure that we are fully representative uh, across America, across um, the world, and that we're representing the places that we operate in. We're representing our user base because we need to make sure we have all the right voices at the table and that we're fully availing of all of the wonderful talent um, that's available. So it's critically important. All right. So Anselm, let me go to you. Um, you know, so you are looking at all of this diversity, equity, and inclusion in the military context, in the Army. And, um, you know, it was not all that long ago, there was a, uh, I think I, I shared this with you, the uh, military reporter, Mark Thompson, he wrote about racism and I- issues with diversity and equity inclusion in the in the armed forces. And he showed a picture of President Trump with all of the top uniformed leaders, and every single one was a white man. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're trying, you know, what you're trying to do uh, in the Army in, in particular, you've got project inclusion, uh, you know, because just as in the civilian world, you've got so many racial and ethnic minorities in the ranks, and yet your officer corps is still very, very white and very male. So, so thank you very much for uh, letting me provide a perspective from the United States Army. First of all, I, I think the picture um, that you talked about really helps us to start this conversation. And I think that as long as we look at that picture and we keep it um, in that dimension, we really create a one, one-dimensional construct of, of, of diversity. And I think my colleague at, at Google, uh, I, I think, got to this a little bit because I think we need to t- think a little broader when we talk about diversity. So at the United States Army, what we want to do is to be able to expand the conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion beyond the visual and really talk about the value of diversity. Mm. Um, last year, October, um, in the United States Army, we published the Army People Strategy. And the Army People Strategy is really the roadmap 
for how we manage talent. I, I think that when we when we talk about diversity, we can't talk about diversity just in the shades of people. We've got to talk about the value that the different backgrounds bring. And it's General McConville, who is the chief of staff of the army, says the army should reflect that the, the, you know what it should reflect America, and we, mm. we appreciate that. And that is what the army people strategy is driving. So, in in the army people strategy, which really looks um, which really looks how the army attracts talent, how we how we recruit, how we retain. And you know how we sustain those efforts. Yeah, I, I was I was really struck by the one of the things that you're doing is removing photographs from candidates as they go for promotion. Can you talk a little bit about why you're doing that? Absolutely, because um, because when when we think about diversity as a value construct, what we must be able to do is to examine the systems that prevent us from getting the very best talent. Mm. In the United States Army, we are charged with really one thing, and that is the defense of the nation. And in the defense of the nation, we need every talent that we could get. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a complex issue, and it simply can't be looked at just simply based on you know a few quick fixes here and there. In the United States Army, before somebody could make it to general, we grow officers. We don't just you know you don't just have somebody one day and appoint them to a general the next day. Right, right. Line. <laughs> so what we need to do is to be able to look across. What systems do we have that prevent people uh, that removes barriers? And, mm-hmm. and so because we know in this in, in, in our country, there's always a history of race and, and, and preference and, and stereotypes that, 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 that go with certain demographic groups. We, we look at this, at this issue. What are some of the barriers that would prevent people from that pathway? So when we go into blind promotion systems with no pronouns, with no photographs, mm-hmm. and um, then the promotion board that looks at these promotion packets could then make a, a, a decision and they're not looking at a photo and, and having these biases. One last point I would like to make is that with our um, with project inclusion, what we are actually doing is, is, is culture changing. And, and we are culture changing because what we want to do is prevent people from doing automatic thinking. So for example, if I told you count from one to 10, because it's rote, you could tell me one to 10. If I were to ask you to be deliberate in your thinking and count from one to 10, but in alphabetical order, you have to pause and you have to think, <laughs> and it's a whole different paradigm. And oh, so, don't make me do that. <laughs> precisely. And so, and so as we examine these systems, what we are doing is taking a very deliberate approach and saying, how we examine these systems, how do we ensure that the population of our officers, of our enlisted, of our warrant officer, of our civilian population, because there's a huge component of civilians in the United States Army as well. Mm-hmm, we must right. make sure that all those all those different groups are adequately represented because when our nation calls us to defense, it doesn't tell us we should just show up and somehow things would be okay. Yeah. This is a very tactical operational event and the nation relies upon us to win. So we must have the very best talent that we could have and utilize all the skills and talents that people, uh, diverse groups bring so that we could continue to fight and win. Mm. So at this point, let me go to Tim and Lauren. Um, you know, you're you're both at Fractured Atlas. Uh, Sarah, 
featured you in uh, in uh, the piece that she wrote that really caught my attention and really sparked the the idea for putting this podcast together. Uh, so thank you for that, Sarah. Uh, so Tim and Lauren, talk about um, talk about fractured atlas. Talk about what it is that you do that makes your organization, you know, so intentional in this journey toward being an anti-racist organization. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Fracture Atlas, the organization where uh, Laura and I are both co-CEOs, is about 20 years old. When I joined 11 years ago, we were almost entirely a white organization. Maybe one person identified as a person of color, but we, we didn't ask. Um, we recognize the value that comes from having a diverse organization and team. You know, probably back then we would have said we wanted an organization that reflected the membership that we hope to serve. Um, and each year we set a, a goal for us to diversify our staff and board. And each year we did a poor to wholly inadequate job of achieving <laughs> that goal. Uh, and it wasn't until 2013 when um, two of our staff members used a portion of their professional development allowance that they get every year to attend the Undoing Racism workshop uh, by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And that moment led us to rethink how we were approaching the, the work. It, we, we created a task force, then we eventually disbanded the task force. We created a leadership um, team book club so we could read books as a leadership team and, and really start our journey um, through that. We brought in facilitators for mandatory all-staff um, uh, convenings. Um, we spent one year looking at oppression. Mm-hmm. The next year, we spent just looking at racism and systems of oppression as they relate to race and what this meant in our organization and, and what we were going to do about it. Then that group worked with our board of directors. Um, we've, we paired these mandatory trainings with trainings in crucial conversations um, because we felt like staff needed tools to help them engage in challenging conversations. And mm-hmm. if it was going to be a mandatory part of their work, we wanted them to, to have the, the tools. Um, this led us to have um, monthly um, uh, race-based caucusing. We have a white caucus and a people of color caucus that meets monthly. We've been doing that for about four and a half years or so. So let me, can I, can I if I can just stop you right there, you know, the, to have a white caucus and a person of color caucus, I, you know, that seems that on the surface could potentially be very problematic. How, how is that not problematic and how is that part of the solution? To the un- unaccustomed ear, that could sound an awful lot like segregation, and isn't that what we're trying to move beyond? Yeah. So let's let's talk about the purpose of the of the caucuses, and they have very different purposes. The purpose of white caucus is to provide a space for white people to learn about systemic racism. Mm-hmm. The purpose for people of color uh, as a caucus is for us to exist in an organization outside of the white gaze. Um, so how can we talk about our experience with an organization? Um, and sometimes it's, it's discussing, you know, sort of microaggressions that happen. So, for instance, we have a fixed tier compensation level. When you have a white associate who talks about spending two weeks in Europe, and we know that person makes $55,000 a year, as opposed to when they're talking about that vacation with someone at their same level who makes the same amount, um, it's clear that we have differences within the organization. However, there's, we have to prepare white colleagues to be able to have that conversation in a way that, is, um, that acknowledges that privilege. Um, and perhaps acknowledge the system of generational wealth and all the benefits they have in being able to do that um, within our organization. So that's just one microcosm of sort of how the caucuses function in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, we get a fair amount of questions about caucusing, both in terms of segregation question and why don't you do other types of caucuses? Why don't you have a women caucus? Why don't you have an LGBTQ caucus? And um, for us, it's we've really been very specific about using the word anti-racism and mm-hmm. anti-oppression um, and, and not sort of creeping into diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
um, because, you know, racism in, in the United States, anti-black racism is sort of the root of the tree from which all the other isms uh, learned how to, how to behave. So um, that's sort of our, our, our thinking around caucuses. Mm. And, and so what are you finding is the result, you know, um, from, from the caucuses, from some of your other efforts? What are, you, what are you seeing happening in terms of your culture, you know, in terms of the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big thing for us, and, and it's been interesting watching how the work we've been doing over four and a half years has positioned our staff to have conversations during the pandemic um, and during the, the uprising, really about grief. Um, you know, my first week at Fractured Atlas was the week that um, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were murdered. And I came from organizations that were predominantly black. We worked in community and in service. And it wasn't uncommon for, um, you know, a woman in the organization who might have been, you know, someone who was preparing food in the kitchen, um, who was doing direct support and staff to bring us together to grieve about things that happened in our community. Mm. Um, and it's, that was sort of the most uh, interesting, interesting thing to me about Fractured Atlas is when I got there and had that experience, everybody was clearly grieving in the office, but no one talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, one of the first things I said was like, hey, let's just gather in the conference room. If you're remote, pop on Zoom and let's just sit there quietly, um, sort of Quaker meeting style and, mm-hmm. and reflect together. Um, and then from there, sort of that work we've done allows space for really authentic conversations to pop up in the organization around grief, around what's happening in your lives. And, you know, I didn't know then that we'd be in the middle of a pandemic now, but a lot of that language, that muscle that we build over time has, um, has really changed our culture and prepared us for, um, you know, the work we're doing right now um, just to survive this pandemic uh, in a way that's healthy and whole. Yeah. So, you know, we're coming down on time. Um, you know, I want to, what I'd like to do is ask each of you, what is one thing they can at least begin to think about? Um, Melanie, you know, sort of what's your one big takeaway that you would really encourage uh, people to be thinking about? I, I would say, Bridget, that to be an anti-racist is to be an active ally, not a neutral ally, but an active ally. So that what all of us can do, we can all lead from our seat to co-curate the culture we want to see in the organizations that we sit in, that fosters that belonging that we all want to see happen. And so Mm -hmm. it really just starts with us. So I would start with active allyship is that antidote um, to being um, an anti-racist. Okay, and there, this is a big issue, and we've got to, you know, you know, just as Lauren said, deal with the root of anti-blackness. And as Melanie talked about, there are structural issues that lead to this. So, Sarah, from your reporting, what, what you know, what are some of the most uh, innovative or um, hopeful things that that you have seen? Sure. So I'll give one answer that's more directed at company leadership and then one that anybody can do, like any employee. Um, so at a, at a high level, a lot of research shows that one of the most effective ways to incentivize people to uh, hire, you know, mentor, promote diverse staff is to, um, to really make that something that they track and measure. And that's something that is really important. So for a manager, that might mean saying like, okay, you know, I'm, building into your performance review every year whether or not you've hired and, and promoted people of color and if you do there's a there's a bonus so there's also a monetary incentive mm-hmm. you know I think that that's one really effective way that research shows can can definitely help and then for employees who want to get involved in in this case I'm speaking specifically to uh, to white people um, one thing that I was really struck by I looked at a recent survey and it found it was a survey of white men and it found that of the group of white men 
uh, that said that they cared a lot about diversity and inclusion. So they thought it was very important. Still, only about half were actively involved with any diversity and inclusion efforts at their organization. Hmm. And the most common reason that they gave was, I'm too busy. Huh. And I think it's really easy to fall into that way of thinking. You know, we all have jobs. We're all pressed for time. And right. um, it, it sort of belies thinking that participating in those efforts is something extracurricular and it's like not mm. core to your job. But I'd say, you know, realize that it is core to your job, realize that it is an essential part of what you're being asked to do to create a more, not just a more moral organization, but also a better one. We know that diversity makes companies stronger. And, mm. you know, uh, so reframe your thinking. I love that thinking about it as core rather than additional or extracurricular, which I do think is is very common. Yeah, Sarah, in your core leadership competency, uh, understanding race, racism, oppression is necessary. Yeah, leaders are shirking a core responsibility of their job in, in not doing this. We're living in a moment in our lives amidst pandemic and social revolution where the impossible is now possible. Mm-hmm. Where things six six months ago um, didn't seem possible. You know, the big ideas, the far-fetched ideas, the ideas where we can create a world where everyone can thrive, that's now possible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a grand strategy or a strategic plan. It, it starts with simple, informed action. And the best way to begin, I'm speaking directly to white male leaders, is pick up a book, listen to a podcast, struggle with it, sit with the, the unease and, and, and discomfort that you might have, and then talk with other white male leaders about it or other white people and, and struggle together. That That is our responsibility, uh, our duty. And that's part of what will help make it possible for us to co-create a future, the future we all want. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me so much of what the Army Secretary, Ryan McCarthy, said. We know we have to do more work, and we know we're going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations. And Anselm, we have a, we have a question from the chat, uh, or, or a comment, really, looking at some of the research that even in disciplinary um, uh, situations in the military, there's research that shows that White officers tend to be much more uh, understanding of other uh, other whites that come before them, and less so of uh, of others of color. Um, you know, sort of seeing individual whites as individuals and uh, people of color as a group. So, um, so I think you know the first step in doing that is that I think we all have stereotypes based on automatic thinking, and for each and every one of us. It's time that we check our stereotypes. It's time for us to create better awareness. It's one thing to have recruitment efforts for unrepresented populations, but it's another effort to really keep them um, retained and feel that sense of belonging. And we could only get there once everybody makes this individual responsibility to become a lot more self-aware and a lot more understanding of the complexity of this issue. Mm. So I want to thank all of you for being part of this conversation today. I want to thank our participants for sending in their questions. Really grateful for uh, the space for this conversation and some of these wonderful, innovative ideas and the sense of commitment that this is something we all need to be committed to individually as well as in our organizations. Next week, we'll be talking about women and leadership. What a perfect time to be doing that, looking at diversity, as we have just seen Kamala Harris, the very first woman of color nominated to a major party ticket. So that'll be next week. So in the meantime, I'd like to, again, thank our our panelists today, thank the participants, thank the New America events team, my Better Life Lab team, David Schulman, our producer. So in the meantime, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.